Hello and welcome back to season three of Wind Your Neck In. And I'll tell you what, it does feel good to be back. Season three brings us another opportunity to bring you top quality t- content where we dig into more than just the superficial news in the sporting world, but some in-depth conversations around high performance and the athletes' views relative to their stories and experiences. So a great way for us to start the season. Um, I'm so excited to be welcoming the man who scored all the points in the historic 95 World Cup win for South Africa, um, which for any rugby player knows it's probably the biggest platform available to us. So it's a pleasure to welcome Joel Stransky. Joel, thank you so much for taking um, you know, roughly an hour out of your day to come on and chat. How are you keeping? No, it's a, it's a great pleasure to be on your podcast, mate, and uh, thanks very much for the invite. We're all good. I'm down here in uh, KwaZulu-Natal on my father-in-law's farm. It's bucketing down outside, um, which is, you know, every farmer wants it to be raining. Yeah. So uh, so as much as we, I'm working from here this week and going back to Joburg next week, it's uh, it's very cool to chat about something different. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. And I think um, while, whilst we're on that, I think it's probably important just to give uh, an idea, like what what haven't done my research i'm aware but i'm conscious that there's people um who will listen to this that aren't sure you know what you get up to now so can you give us a brief kind of um idea of what you get up to um for for work and and in your spare time now yeah so maybe um in in the real brief version when i stopped playing i I got injured in 1999 and had to stop playing um i was already coaching a little bit at leicester and uh i actually considered you know a real career in coaching and had some drama down at bristol and ended up Mm. um going to court and having all these dramas. And at the end of that, I just decided that, you know, coaching maybe wasn't for me. I would rather be in a, you know, in an environment where my fate and destiny was more in my own hands and uh, came back to South Africa, entered the world of business, um, cut my teeth in the sports marketing side of business, looked after SA Rugby um, commercial affairs um, for a company called Megapro, a great friend of mine, George Rotenbach, also a former rugby player. And then had a couple of big corporate positions and uh, about 10 years ago, went on my own with a business partner uh, back into the technology space. We have uh, nine companies now in our stable. We've, we've brought on we brought on another mate of ours and, uh, and our lawyer has a small share in our business as well. Um, and, and we, you know, we have nine companies, mainly in the technology space, mainly in the telephony platform space. We're, we're a big we're the biggest Genesis partner in Africa now. We have another business that is a, a Via house. We have our own hosted um, IPPBX solution. And then we do data analytics and some artificial intelligence and recruitment, wow. um, some other plays in and around the software space. Yeah. So so that's where I am now. I, I'm very blessed. Our business is based in Johannesburg. I live in KwaZulu-Natal and I commute every week. Um and, and this week, I'm only going up for one day, which is fantastic, but it is bucketing down here. So it's not like we can even get out on the beach or go and ride our bikes. Yeah. No, I, it's such an interesting, um, I, what I'd love to start off with, and I mean, what I'm <clears throat> going to try and do is not make this too linear because, um, you know, any, anyone could just jump on your Wikipedia and see the journey of your career and your life. But I think whilst we're on the coaching thing, um, I, I I, I always thought, you know, in the position and the role that you were within the South African team as the out half and um, just demands an element of leadership to be in that position, right? Um, it was it was no surprise when I read that you did move into coaching and you touched on, you know, you felt like you, you moved into that transition in, in Leicester and then the, um, the incident with Bristol. But I believe, you know, you would have made a really good coach. So the move away from from coaching, I wonder if you could just dip into that a bit more, a bit more detail about um, how you find the coaching. Did you enjoy putting the trainers on and the boots on and, and trying to upskill people? I, I absolutely loved it. And uh, so, so my wife always tells me she thinks I made a, a, a terrible mistake and that I should have stayed in coaching. She she says uh, she believes I would have been a, a great coach. And, and, and there's a part of me that believes that too. You know, I think... Um, have an ability maybe to transfer knowledge and to mentor a little bit. And um, and, and the other thing is um, I think coaching is unbelievably rewarding, you know. Yeah. Um, I still help a little bit here from time to time and I go and coach the kids every now and then whenever I've got a gap. And I think there's nothing more rewarding than, than transferring knowledge and skill to someone and seeing them go out and deliver on the pitch um, in a way that, you see the growth in that youngster, the child, the player, whatever it is, and seeing them come to the fore and 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 you know use what you've what you've taught them to achieve something great or, or, 
go and score a try or kick a goal or, you know, a great backline move or a great attack um, set of phases. It, it's a wonderful, wonderful sense of accomplishment to transfer knowledge like that. But, um, you know, I think life is also about timing and I, and I think with um, the drama that came at Bristol, it just meant that I, I found myself in a gap where I didn't have a coaching position. Every club had coaches in place. It meant sitting out a season. Um, yeah. So we came back to South Africa. It, you know, the same thing was already in place here. All the provincial teams had coaches. And and my natural next step was, well, what am I going to do now? I'm not a guy who can sit idle and, mm. uh, and and you know, just wait for time to pass and hope that something comes along. So, you know, I ended up getting involved in the business. And then it, it just became a completely different journey. And then my rugby part became more that of, of talking absolute nonsense on TV as, as opposed to transferring, you know, knowledge. And... And 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 I've thoroughly loved it, and my and my life has worked for me. But if there were, if there, if I look back on my life, there would be two regrets. I have one is um, that I I um I didn't, you know, maybe persevere and and, and hang in there and go coaching because I think um, I would have found that unbelievably rewarding. I mean, I have to ask the follow up that question. What's number two? Number two is when I was studying, I didn't uh, I, I didn't finish my degree and. Um, and then I started again a few a few years later, but you know, right up there, up um, up front, I wish I, I wish I'd studied more. I think um, you know, life is about learning. It's um, it's about uh, always improving yourself. It's about mm. you know taking the opportunities. When I was playing professional rugby, I had time on my hands. I could have done you know maybe a masters or gone on and done a, a doctorate. I, there, there was time, and and, and I, I, maybe I've never did my MBA. I, I, I wish I'd. Uh, I wish I'd progressed on that front. I think um, I would I would have been better for it for sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting because um, there's the terminologies banding about now in our world, right? Where it's like the growth, it's a growth mindset, and um, what you're talking about now in hindsight is um, you wish you'd stuck at it because life is about learning, is is what you've just said, and that is the, a great definition for a growth mindset. And there's no doubt in my mind that. Um, even though the terminologies mightn't have been about, you know, those years ago, you definitely would have had that innate growth mindset within you just to, 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 but as a result of how successful you became. So, you know, when you look back to those early years, I believe that that is actually, um, from all the people I've spoken to, it can be fundamentally manifested from, from childhood. You know, there's like a, um, a desire to, to improve or succeed. And South Africans are a good example of people in a sporting context who spend a lot of time outside and they practice. And we had A.B. de Villiers on and he talked about how he would just stand outside and bat and bowl and catch. And he just couldn't let it go until he was improving to where he wanted to be. And I think digging into just some of your early childhood would be an interesting kind of point to 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 divert to because Maritzburg, yeah, yeah Maritzburg College, College um, <laughs> is is a, is a well-renowned rugby playing school and um, you were also influenced by someone like Skunk Nicholson who was a hugely um, decorated schools coach so talking about you know that clearly a man who wants to get better and improve constantly how much do you think those early years um, kind of paved the way? So, so I think the early years were massive, but I, th- I think it started long before that, to be honest. I think, you know, as a as a young South African, to your point, you know, we, I, I grew up wanting to be a Springbok rugby player. We we dreamed about it. We played when I was a, a little guy, you know, much younger than my most college days. We played rugby and cricket in the garden all day. We, if it yeah. was raining, we went inside and we played inside. Yes. And and it was always about, um, you know, playing against the All Blacks. It was always about, you know, winning the game. And and if and there was always a kick near the end to win it, and if the kick missed, there was extra time, and there was another kick. And there was always <laughs> there was always one of those scenarios. And uh, but we always beat the All Blacks. Um, and and then ironically, uh, I only went to Marysburg College um, for my last two years of school. Before that, I was at Rondebosch Boys High School, and at Rondebosch, I had a bit more of a cricket focus. I actually hmm. Gary Kirsten was was my best mate, and when my parents moved to Kozuli Natal, I actually lived with Gary and and his parents. And if you think that AB practiced a lot, you should have seen how much Gary practiced. Gary and yeah. I used to, and, and they lived in Newlands Cricket Ground. Every day after school, we would be out there on the field, either throwing balls to each other, batting, um, or, or catching practice, or hitting you know balls across the field, hundred meters to make you know the catches as hard as possible. But but everything was about improving and and, and being a better player at whatever your goal was at the time, because. Right then, it may have been cricket, may have been the goal, but you know, a few months later, when rugby season came along, it was it was a rugby-oriented um, um, goal. 
But the point was, we always dreamt of uh, being the best we could be. And I think maybe back then we couldn't put it into words. Um, we just wanted to go out and practice and train and make sure, you know, when we, we batted, we made runs. When we bowled, we took wickets. If a catch came away, we, we you know, we snuffled, we, we grabbed everything. Um, <laughs> we, we, we just wanted to, to play the game and, and we wanted to do well at it, you know. And I think that is the South African mindset. It's why... You know, here in Southern Africa, which and, and you know, South Africa, Africa is not for sissies. It's uh, it's tough there <laughs> at times, but South Africans are resilient. You know, and AB would have said the same thing. It's um, it's not always easy here, but we we find a way to make it work. And and you know, life here is good because we work at it. We we get out there and make it happen. Absolutely, and I think it's interesting you bring that up. Like, because South Africa does have like a. It's a tough culture, you know, and I, I've met loads of amazing South Africans throughout my rugby career. And I think one of the interesting things um, when I was researching specifically about you as a South African, but being of English and Czech um, descent, did that ever have an influence on your upbringing or how you, how you felt um, whenever you were playing with the other kids? Or Because um, it's a country that's so widely divided, but you've gone on to represent the Springboks and win a World Cup for them. Um, did that ever influence any of your upbringing? No, so you know, I mean, so it's interesting you say that, and um, and and obviously you research bloody well. It's uh, not not many people pick that up. Most people pick up the fact that I come from a Jewish background, from a Jewish family, yeah. and uh, and and that certainly um, was quite influential. You know, as as a young Jewish boy, my my, my dad was um, he he had a couple of. Fun- rules in our house you know if you wanted to play sport you had to pass your exams and you had to yeah, do well yeah. at school and if he said you got to get 65 i got 65 you know it was it was one of those but we had other commitments around the jewish religion which meant sometimes our time wasn't always easy and it, and, it, and it wasn't always good but but every now and then you know the prejudice or the difficulties came out on that side and you know you yeah. to just take it in your stride it's part of it's part of life it's part of growing up um, it's part of, uh, you know, the, the hurdles that are, are put in front of you. I don't think it ever hindered me or knocked me down. I think it, at times it maybe even fired me a little bit more. But mm. but but my background, uh, I think, defines all, all for all of us, for that matter. You know, our background defines who we are and Absolutely. and how we're brought up defines our attitude going forward. And, and uh, I, I think I came from a... A family that was um, fair, um, sometimes tough. Um, we, you know, we, I grew up in a household that wasn't particularly wealthy, um, but we never really wanted for anything. And um, there were, it was a household full of love, and, and and as a result of all those contributors, full of desire. You know, if I think of my brothers, we we're all guys who you know want to go out and achieve in whatever we set our goals to. And how many how many brothers do you have, brothers or sisters? I mean, I, I don't know the information on that, but it does seem like you came from a, a, a relatively big family um, where you were well, probably... We were, we, we were three boys. We were three, three boys. boys yeah. So very sadly, my youngest brother passed away a couple of months ago from brain cancer. So um, that's left a bit that. of a void. In, no, thank you. It's, it's left a bit of a void in our lives here. Yeah? Um, we were very close, him and I. Um, so, so, but we were three brothers, and and I had an uncle who lived with us. So, so we were a house really of five men. Yeah. At uh, at one point, and um, so my poor mom, um, I think she went through hell, you know, dealing with, with these five test, five testosterone fueled yeah. um, young men growing up, and 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 probably not the easiest thing in the world for her. But, but, but I, I guess that environment also was an environment that created competition, and and as we know, competition is good; it brings out the best in all of us. Hundred percent, and I can relate massively because I'm one of four boys, and um, my father, um, and then that kind of my mum and dad made the six, so it was five boys. Um, my poor mother had went through some pretty similar experiences, I would say, uh, dealing with us um, mad young Northern Irishmen. So, um, I think yeah, you're definitely right. Yeah. The competition, the competition of the house. Like I remember competing fiercely with my brothers to try and. Um, you know, just score a goal or or tackle one of them, and I think that sets the early precedent for what you go on to do with your with your career and with your life, and it sets the foundations. And I think, yeah, you, you touched on that Martinsburg College experience, but it, it even starting before that. And I think when we look to your that you said, you know, I dreamt of being a Springbok from whatever age. Do you think you'd actually already kicked the goal? You know, obviously you didn't know in 95 that you would do, you would kick the drop goals and kick the goals, but you probably in your head practiced what was going to happen a million times. You know, you'd probably dreamt of that moment from whenever you could walk. Yes, I I don't think I ever dreamt of it being a drop goal, but there's there's no doubt that um, 
that every time I, I practiced my goal kicking, there, there, there was a mission, you know, and I think um, it was yeah. about putting pressure on myself. So so it wasn't about saying, well, you know, if I kick this and, and it's the practice on a Sunday afternoon um, and I miss it, it, you know, it doesn't count for anything. I, I would always say, you know, this is an important kick. I've, I've got to kick this over now and I'll, I'll put myself in a situation to ensure there was pressure, to ensure that, um, you know, the focus was there and the mindset was there and, and that you, you, you followed your kicking process to, you know, your routine to the T every single time. Yeah. Um, and, and and you make sure you did it 100% right as often as you possibly could. Because I think if you, if you don't do that, then when there is pressure or, or there is a big occasion and you find it a little tougher to stick to your routine and obviously things go right. Um, I don't think I, you know, I don't think about, if I think back, I don't think I ever really thought about kicking a drop goal to win a regular cap or, or maybe even kicking a penalty to win a regular cup. You know, for, for us, it was, it was as, a, as a youngster growing up in those dreamy years, it was more about beating the All Blacks. And then yeah. you know, as, as you get older, your dreams change and your goals change. And, and yeah. then we had a period in this country where, where when we came into senior rugby, we, we, we played in the area of apartheid. There was, there, there was no international competition. So we just smashed each other. We just we just murdered murdered each other for about three months, first two or three years of playing provincial rugby. Some we killed each other week in, week out. Oh, it was it was like a, it was almost hatred, you know. It was um yeah. it was it was everything you can imagine from from great rivalries and much, much more. So uh, and, and in fact so much so that when when a Springbok side was selected in, in the beginning of the international era for us, sort of 92, 93. Um, it was quite hard to get the guys together and break the provincial cliques because everyone had, had learned over the two or three years before that to hate each other and smash each other into the ground. I think, like, <clears throat> let's just touch on that then. I think, you know, uh, the great rivalries, are there any games or or moments in games where you remember thinking, like, this is this is going up maybe a bit above what rugby is about? Like, the, it's, like the physica- physicality of what was going on was just mental. So there was some, you know, there's always been great rivalries in this country. And uh, in my early provincial years as a youngster, I played for Natal, for the Sharks, and then um, I moved down to Cape Town and I played for Western Province. But I grew yeah. up in Cape Town, so I always had, you know, some roots there. Um, and then moved to Natal as a 15, 16-year-old and went to Mercer College. So so there were great rivalries. To, to be honest, the, the, the Sharks um, – we're probably the team that had come out of the, the second division. They didn't, they had, they had a great proud history, but maybe not the rivalry that Western Province had. You know, Western Province had this massive north-south rivalry with yeah. with um, the Northern Transvaal, with the, with the Bulls, the Blue Bulls. Yeah. Um, and, and so there were there were times where whoever you were playing for, when you played against the Blue Bulls and, and the Bulls were quite a dominant force, and only then did, you know, did the Sharks did we go on and win the Curry Cup for the first time? Did we become a yeah. bit of a force? Um, it, it was a period of uh, it was a period of rivalry and, and great rugby. But I, but I think um, there was always the odd you know rugby in those days. There was no cameras catching all the all the shenanigans as you would say. But yeah. but um, there was always the odd thing happening. And I don't think there was there was too much where it really boiled over and got properly malicious. It was. Um, it was hard, but and uncompromising. But in most cases, it was fair. Yeah, I, th- I would just, I would love to have like the accessibility to watch one of those games, you know, because <laughs> I think it sometimes it looks like a different sport, but the physicality, like people talk a lot about how the physicality's changed, but it's done just that. It's changed. It's not. It's not better or worse it's just different you know there's there's things that would have been allowed to go that don't get allowed to go now but it doesn't mean you know that's any really different because some of those you see the clips of like the old um lions test series in south africa and we have willie john on and he talked you know about how physical it was um it just the games evolved massively hasn't it the games changed yeah and i think for the better you know um if i think back we played a couple of games where where our tactic was, you know, let's kick a massive high up and under. And if the fullback jumps, run his legs out, you know. It was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was the nature of the game. And it, You'd be surprised how, ma- how many teams are still doing that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I would think we ended one or two careers, actually. But, um, you know, you, you it was hard and it was tough. And, you know, I, I think if you think about, you know, the front rows and the locks opening up and going through and smashing a few guys. <laughs> there, there was loads yeah. that happened. It was, yeah, it, it was, there was loads and, and, and probably even more so. I mean, I'm, I've got scars on my body from being rucked. You know, mm. guys with studs 
you know, two two inches long, who just you know ran over the back of you, and and you needed stitches from a couple of boot flying boots. You know, it was, yeah, it was it was the nature of the game. You, and 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 to be fair, it was what we played with, what we expected, what we knew, and what we lived with. And 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 you knew that if you lay on the wrong side, you were going to get shooed, and you were going to get a bit of shoe pile of note. And you know, if you jumped here or there, it uh, it would be it would be really tough. But you know, it it, it, it was the game, and we played within those boundaries. Absolutely. I think it's probably an, uh, an adequate time to skip to, you know, obviously we've just come off the back of the Lions series and there was like a whole, so I have to be careful how I word this because there was a whole host of criticism for the way South Africa played. But oh, if no, you, look can, at, you can say it as it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the most glamorous rugby, Joel. Like let's, we, we, we know that, but if you look right, so I've got like two brains. I've got the love of rugby. I love rugby being played in a really positive way. But at the same time, I'm a professional rugby player and winning's important. If yeah. you look at the statistics, right, the team, you hear all these people quoting it, but the team that kicks the most at international level usually ends up winning the game. So the South Africans clearly, right, they play to their strengths. They've got huge men and some amazing kickers. But I was wondering, as a man who played out half and enjoyed playing, you know, obviously an amazing kicker, like we've discussed, but enjoyed playing the game of rugby too. Do you... Do you, how do you sit with that kind of de- the debate around how the games were played and was it a good spectacle for the, for the supporters? and Or is it just simply they won the series, you know, they've gone and won a World Cup and a Lions series within the space of two years and fair play to them? So, so I, I like your analogy of saying you're a man with two brains and I think that's a really good way to describe it. And I would share that view. There's, there's, there's a part of me that says, um, you know, that, that we have become... I, I would almost say it almost unbeatable. I think we are so good at what we do yeah. um, that I don't think there's a team in the world that can beat us right now. You know, we play Australia um, a couple of times in the next few weeks, then we play New Zealand a couple of times. I can't see either of them beating us. Um, and, and and it's not because they play, a, you know, a brand of rugby that doesn't suit us or that, that can beat us. It's because the laws of the game have become such that the way we play makes us impossible to beat. We're big, strong, yeah. physical. We have a great kicking game. We are unbelievable at the set phases. Um, yep. We more well defensively. We have the biggest, the highest work rate in world rugby. Yep. Um, we don't miss tackles. You, you, you know that that recipe just makes us impossible to beat. What I would say though is that all we've done is we've played to our strengths within the laws of the game, and 100%. we found a way to win playing our brand of rugby in the laws of the game. So when I look at it, I, I find it quite amusing that people criticise the way we play. And yes, they may, they may be right. They may be right. It's not pretty. It's dull as all hell. The series <laughs> against the Lions was 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 at times not even watchable because, you know, the Lions, to be fair, weren't better. They scored two more tries in three games. It, um, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't pretty, but, but it is very effective. So when I look at that, I, I almost question the world rugby and say, you know, what have we done about the laws of the game to, to say this, this is – this is the, the, the best team in the world is a team that, that kicks the ball a lot, that, that um, focuses more on defence than on anything else, that, that kicks the ball to force penalties at where they can force penalties at scrum time and at more time. Um, and, and for all this negative approach, they get rewarded. You know, and then I look yeah. at the laws and I say, it gets even worse than that. If we are bigger and stronger and we scrum better than the opposition, we're already killing them in the scrum, their guy gets sent to the Sinbin because he's not strong enough and, they, and then they've got to bring on a weaker guy and scrum with one guy less. You know, the laws of the game, I think, are the problem at the moment. All South Africa have done is we've said, you know, these are our strengths. We're big, strong and physical. We've got the likes of Peter Steph, Dutoy and Franco yeah. Mostert who can play lock or blindside flank. Um, you know, we, we, we're going to go out and smash teams and we're going to do it unbelievably well and no one's going to beat us. And, 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 I don't think anyone in the world would criticise us for wanting to go out and win games. But what we should all be looking at is the laws of the game saying, how can we make it more of a spectacle? Because it is, it is the, the spectacle is gone at the moment. From, not from the Springbok game, but from rugby itself. Joe, I'm so glad that's the, la- that's the tangent you took because my next question or my next statement down here in my little notepad was change of laws. Okay, so you, like you've, you're exactly on the same wavelength. We're in agreement that... No one can begrudge the Springboks for playing the way they do because they just basically have found a winning formula within within the laws of rugby union. So my question, probably as a follow-up, it was the next next one down, I promise, was yeah. okay, what what would you what what 
recommendations would you change to the laws? Because there's been loads, and I'm, I'm not putting you, I, I appreciate I'm putting you on yeah, the spot slightly, yeah. but I mean, I'll give you a few suggestions that have been banded about. So there's um, a reduction in the amount of substitutions to change the size of a rugby player. So they're saying if you reduce from eight subs to five subs, then you have to have tight head and loose head cover in one player. You need to have a second row that can blah, blah, blah. So that was a, a suggestion. I mean, but in your world, what in terms of the actual fundamentals of the rugby laws, would you change to try and make the product better? Because what we can't, right, a man who's in sports marketing, you have to understand that the reason rugby sits where it is is because at times people don't understand it. And actually the, it has to be a like a, a sport that people want to watch or people are really interested in. And rugby can confuses and bores people at yeah. times that's the reality so in your yeah. world what would you look to, to adjust so i think the, i think that probably the terminology you need to just to, to to find for what it needs to be is an entertaining spectacle really it's mm. you know you know we compete for eyes and if you think about it and i just think about super sports um here in south africa we have probably 14 maybe sports channels yeah. um let alone five movie channels and another you know, 200, you know, all-purpose channels or entertainment channels. Um, rugby competes for the eyes of the viewer. And whether it's in the stadium, um, here in Durban, you know, when, when there's a rugby game on and super rugby game or whatever it is in February, March, if it's a good day, everyone goes to the beach. If yeah. it's a bad day, people stay home and they might watch British football or they might, you know, watch the English Premier League um, rugby yeah. or the Gallagher Premier League or French Top 14, or they might watch athletics or cricket or whatever else is on we compete for us and 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 for us to win the eyes and get get people to come and watch our game it needs to be a spectacle and right now it's become a little bit dull in my view it's become a bit boring there's a couple of things i would do the first thing i would do and my friends who are all forwards probably all hate me for saying this i would i would i would think the best thing to do is to get rid of the mall somehow you got to stop this this complete focus on on teams morning you know i think in the last few weeks we've seen I think the stats are ridiculous. It's something like sixty percent of all tries scored are scored from a mall. It's mm. um, it's it's not pretty. It's ugly. It's it's impossible to defend. It's technically there's a there's an element of being in front of the ball. Maybe we need to just make you know you can pull them all down. You can drag it down. You can do anything you want, but 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 make it a fairer contest. Um, you know, I, I think World Rugby have tried a few things. They failed, to be quite honest. They failed. They've tried this um, fifty twenty two. They've tried you know the dropout from the goal line. Um, I don't I think we've seen in the Southern Hemisphere, I saw a stat yesterday in the test matches that, that dropout from the goal line, I think on the New, New Zealand-Australia game, it happened for this, maybe the second time mm. only in, you know, in three months of trialling it. I don't, I, I don't recall seeing once a, a 50-22 line-out going to the kicking team. So, so you know, those are initiatives that great idea to try and, you know, make defenders stand back but fail, fail dismally. Um, you know, we laugh and we chat about it. You can't make the fields any wider because the players need more space because then, you you know, the stadiums are, are not going to work. Can you take a player off the field and, you know, you become like rugby league? I don't know what the, I don't know what the solution is, but what we do need is we need, we need a, a competitive environment where players are forced to the breakdown. You know, you need to maybe commit to the breakdown, take, you know, make the, the, the defence a little bit more stretched, need a little bit more space and you need guys to want to throw the ball around. I don't have the, I don't have the solutions to be honest. Yeah. Um, I, I know what we need and I know what we want, but how to get there is is really really tough. And I think more needs to be done to to experiment to try and find a way. Absolutely, I think yeah. Like I, I didn't I, sorry, I didn't expect you to have like a real clear blueprint of it. But I think what it does it, it symbolizes um, you know someone in who's who's worked in kind of the me, in, in high level media knows a lot about rugby. Um, kind of identifying that there needs to be a change. And the word I was looking for was a product, right? Rugby has to have a good product or else people don't want to watch it. And I think yeah. we are at the point where there is there is change. And it's interesting because we're, the Premiership have just adopted a few of these rules. So we, we've not kicked off the season yet, Joel. We are one preseason game away from starting next week. And the 50-22 is one of the rules that we've brought in. And I, I kind of, maybe naively thought that it would make more space in the front line because you have to sit people back. But um listen, kicking spirals into the corner isn't my job. I'll just, I just kind of get into the middle of the pitch and try and hit people. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Um, I think um, if we, if we look to kind of sidestep um, backwards slightly, you talked earlier about uh, discipline 
clearly a man who was very disciplined with your your goal kicking. And, and I just want to touch on an area of your background where I wonder, did you, did you develop some of your discipline? Was it already innate within you? But I, I appreciate this is, this is going backwards slightly, but your military conscription, right, is, is an area I just want to touch on because whilst we're trying to create this holistic picture of Joe Stransky and, and moving towards discussing the performance of the 95 uh, World Cup and into your time at Tigers, how much of your military conscription, what you learnt in there, the manners, maybe behaviours that are obviously quite innate within being in the military, um, influenced some of you, maybe your kicking practice techniques, maybe you already have them in you and how that experience was in general. Sure, I've never really thought about it from uh, that perspective. So I think for most South Africans, because it was compulsory and uh, it was yeah. prescription, so so we didn't really have a choice. We could do it before we went to university or after university. I chose to do it before and get it out of the way. Um, I also <laughs> chose I also chose to do it because my call up was to um, was a soft call up to Pretoria, mm. um, and I, and I and I realized it would be good for my rugby career. So so I, I chose from that perspective. I to be honest. It's um, if I look back, there was an element of those two years from purely being in the military that was a complete waste of my life. Really, uh, so interesting. I, 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 yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd be quite frank about it. It was, there was an element. I mean, I was in the air force. We did three months of basics, and then I was a, a, a loady and, and on an air force base, loading airplanes, driving forklifts and big trucks, and I learned a skill set, and um, I've never used it since. Um, Probably what I learned in the basic training was a little bit about teamwork. Yeah. Um, about about helping, you know, weak guys and getting everyone together because in that environment, if you're only as strong as your weakest link. Um, so maybe there was an element of learning about teamwork and about bringing people together and about helping those who need help and about, you know, pulling the stronger guys to help the weaker guys. But um, I think discipline itself is something that is either inside you, in your DNA, or, or it's something you have to teach yourself to be better at. I, I don't think someone can come along and say, no, your discipline is bad. You need to focus harder. You've got to really, really want it. You've got to really mm-hmm. desire something badly enough to commit to it uh, to become that dedicated that you become disciplined in, in, in your approach. It's, um, I, th- I think if you go through your, your, your life as a sportsman in different sports or in business or in family, I think you'll find there's cycles of, of, of that commitment that, you know, bring discipline along and there's times where you're less disciplined. I mean, I, I when I stopped playing rugby and, and I, I, I started cycling a bit because I had a knee injury, um, uh, uh, you know, I didn't really give it too much attention, but a few years afterwards, I got challenged to do a, a, a grueling cycle race for charity and and I, and I did it. And since then, I've become a cyclist and an endurance athlete. And, and I do Ironman and Epic and I ran the Comrades oh, Marathon two years ago. You know, so so I think to do that, you need to be more disciplined than in, in many other parts of life. Mm. And if I didn't have that discipline somewhere deep down inside, I would never have, have finished any, any of those events. I think it's something that is deep down. Sometimes it needs to be woken up, I think. I think there's definitely mm. an element where, you you know, you can let it go to sleep for a little while. Um, but, but, but I think it's got to be somewhere in your burning desire to achieve something that that causes you to be disciplined and and dedicated to to your goal, to your mission, to your dream. Um, it's not always easy, and, I, and as I say to my my wife sometimes, who I love dearly, but if she had a choice, she'd stay in bed and not go to gym. <laughs> I, I say to her that that first step is the hard step. Get out of bed and take the first step because because then then you know the journey becomes a little bit easier. But to take that first step is is the one that, which requires proper commitment and discipline. Absolutely. So, I mean, <clears throat> I appreciate I was kind of heading down that tangent of discipline with the, the military conscription. Interesting to hear that you say actually maybe more of what f- you kind of formulated or or maybe learned in some capacity was teamwork and leadership. Clearly a man who had high levels of leadership naturally in you. So it wouldn't have surprised me if you became one of the ones who dragged people through some of the the difficult training that I'm sure you did. And I think when you move through into that South African group, particularly focusing on that 95, now obviously um, a hugely influential 
group of players in there and a coach, um, Coach Kitch Christie, um, who's well respected and, and in the Hall of Fame. Um, I think naturally Francois Pinar will, will stand out as someone who people look at through that. But but your influence within that group as an out half, as a game leader, as a standard setter, probably goes under the radar slightly. So I wonder um, if you could touch on some of the aspects of leadership that that group needed, or maybe was it a, a well-policed machine that just kind of worked itself into success? No, so I, I think when you when and, and you would know it, you know, when you when you come together at a high level like that, I think every person in their own right is a leader already, and um, yeah. and 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 I, I think you probably you don't at times need leadership. At times, you just need someone who you know gels all the leaders together and and with a common purpose. And 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 I think that's that squad had it. We had it in abundance, actually. You know, if, if I think. Uh, if I think about not just Kitch Christie and Francois, we had Mornay Duplessis, a great Springbok captain who was our yeah. manager, who was like a father figure to us. I mean, I still chat to Mornay every couple of weeks and phone him to see how he is. And he phones me and we and, you know, we have a catch-up. Edward Griffiths was our CEO of SA Rugby. And he wasn't the CEO who sat in the boardroom. I'll tell you, Edward was the guy on the field with us kicking balls back to me after training. <laughs> he, was un- he was unbelievable. And, you know, so, so, so when you take all that leadership into account. Then you can go through the, the squad. There were probably three or four um, you know, provincial captains in that squad who mm. you know, all came together under Francois. Um, there, there was, and, and in fact, there's probably a great lesson to be learned from, from that squad as well. You know, Kitch Christie had a, a really tough decision to make around the leadership of that squad because of that North-South rivalry and player mm. rivalry. There were two great captains at the time in South Africa. There was Francois and there was a guy by the name of Tian Strauss who went on to play for Australia in, in a Rugby World Cup and became a, a World Cup winner with Australia. Um, and Kitch left Tian out of that squad um, purely because he thought the, the real strong leadership ability of Tian would pull, you know, the Western Province players and maybe even some of the Sharks players to, towards him and, they, and players would gravitate to him and that, you know, the northern guys, the Transvaal, the northern Transvaal um, guys would gravitate, the free state guys would gravitate towards Francois and there would be a split in the camp. So he left Tian out of that, that equation, which at the time, you know, some of us were gutted for Tian and uh, we didn't think it was necessarily the right move. But, but you know, it's easy to look back and say, well, it clearly was because mm. we won the World Cup. We had a camp that was unbelievably happy. We had, um, you know, we had a team that was gelled and, and united with a, with a common goal. And it, and it all it all worked, um, but but you know coming back to the original point, it's um, I think I think you know in an environment like that, it's not so much about individual leaders. It's about it's about all the leaders in their positions, in their roles, with a common goal, working together to achieve that common goal. And, and that's what had it in abundance. You know, I don't think Francois was obviously a great a great captain. Mornay was a great manager, and Kitch was an unbelievably astute and detailed detailed coach. We had we had we had just this plethora of leaders there that just made it very easy for everyone. So interesting. I think good leadership normally comes almost uh, in the background, doesn't it? You were used to seeing these kind of totemic um, like leaders, like Willie John, for example, who's this massive man like he's just a, a, a hero or idol of, of mine being where i'm from okay so but you see him as this big but what he but a lot of his softer skills probably would have been under the radar and i think it is those soft skills of of gelling a group together and um, allowing people to fill certain roles um, that actually make it a successful group rather than just a, a leadership group, you know. So, if you look towards that, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna pest you for a couple of minutes on the actual '95 World Cup final, which I know you've spoken about probably yeah, yeah, a hundred thousand times. Um, rather than just discussing the actual details of what happened, I'd be more interested to dig into kind of probably the the sports psychology point of view of where, of where you were through that game, and I know um, a lot of pressure was on your shoulders. Fair to say, underdogs for the final as a result of how New Zealand had played, and obviously General Lombie been in the wing. I think when you played that game, were you just in the flow? People talk about being in the flow, just being like you just you were just you just did, and all the hours and months and years of practice just came to fruition in a purple patch that day for you. And that's not to suggest it hadn't happened before. It was probably a purple patch of a, of a tournament, really, where South Africa were were fantastic. But that day in particular, can you recall just how you felt whenever you were kicking? Um, you know, off the tee or or the drop goals or just playing in general. 
So, so I think to your point, you know, that, that type of self-belief that, um, that we, we had on the day, you know, it doesn't just come on the day. It, uh, it comes through a process and, and it comes through um, positive affirmation. It comes through hours and hours of practice. It comes through a whole, you know, long, drawn-out cycle that instills in your subconscious the, the belief that you can go and beat a team as good as the All Blacks on a, on a day like that. Yeah. I think for us, our journey, it's probably easier to explain this by going back and just thinking about the journey a little bit. You know, our journey to that World Cup started in probably Jan or Feb with a really big squad. I laugh and joke about it and 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 and, and I tell people this, it's hard to believe. I think Nas Puerta was even in that first training squad. And I think, uh, I, I, I say tongue-in-cheek, I think he was 65 years old already, but he was probably close <laughs> to 40. <laughs> and and Kitch invited him there, and 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 you know, so, so so what happened was you had this environment that was unbelievably competitive to get in the squad. Then you got in the squad, and you thought, geez, you know, that's, uh, you know, I'm good enough to be here, and I've been selected. And I think that growth, you know, starts. And then you train hard, and we we worked our butts off. We were the fittest team, and I won't go into the detail there, but we were unbelievably fit. We went through the journey of the World Cup. We had our little speed dumps and our setbacks. We had players sent off and sent home. We had a couple of injuries. Um, but most importantly, that journey involved the mental side, to your point, the, the, mm. the mental fortitude that comes from little triggers that instill that self-belief. And Kitsch was unbelievable at it. There was, after that um, All Black win over England in the semi-final. I was in the hotel. The, the local guys we were at altitude in Joburg, so the local guys had gone home. Us guys from the coast were not allowed to go home because he wanted us at altitude. <laughs> we were in the hotel with him. No, he, he attention to detail, little things. That's he, amazing. Um, he um, he stayed in the hotel with us. Mark Andrews was my roommate. We were playing pool in the pool room, um, and Kitch was watching the the tape, the rerun of the semi-final, and he got up after watching it for a second or third time and he said, we can meet those guys, and he walked out. And I think at that point, you know, that was the beginning of the week of instilling belief in us that we could beat them, that um, we were as good as that day we could beat them. And um, I think when we all, you know, we got, by the time we got to kick off on the Saturday, that belief was there. We had Madiba and Nelson Mandela come speak to us uh, we had him come into the change room before the game wearing a Springbok shirt, and we were touched by his his, his magic. Um, you know, we'd, we'd we'd seen the nation unite around us, and and this overwhelming you know wave of support. Um, I think I think most importantly, you know, when you when you get to a rugby world cup final or any final for that matter, you're in with a shot. You know, if you 100%. if you're in the final, you're in with a shot, and mm-hmm. you've got a you you you've you've got a chance. And I, and I think. The longer we got to that final, the closer it got to us, the more we believed we if we, we, we could beat them. We had, a, we had two plans. We thought, you know, if, if Lomu steamrolls us and we get behind, you know, we had a plan B, which again just, you know, builds that self-confidence in the background, thinking, well, if things go wrong, you know, we've got another plan, we can come back and win this. I think if things had gone wrong and we'd gone to plan B, we would have been rubbish. We would have taken 50 <laughs> points. But um, we didn't need it. You know, we, we stopped Lomu and... and the longer the game went on, the more we hung in there, the more, you know, the faith we had in our fitness levels, the more we realised we had a good chance of winning it. When it went to extra time, I think there's not one of us in our squad believed that we were ever going to lose that game. We were just, you know, we were getting stronger and we were ta- we were, we were dominating. It's um, it's it's all in the mind and sometimes it's, it's hard to explain, you know, how much belief plays Self-belief plays in the role of a sportsman, um, and 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 I laugh at commentators and people who say, "Oh, he's he's really a you know confidence player." Every sportsman in the world is a confidence player, um, and and if you believe as intensely as that, and you've got the skill set to match it up, then there's you know there's on a day like that when fate and destiny is on your side, it's very hard to lose. Amazing, like so, like get goosebumps hearing about that day. Um, I think the the follow up has to be just around you specifically, though. You know, I mean, what do you think um, you had done, or or how you felt going into that game, so that you individually? Because I I live in a world where I also do a close skill, so I'm a hooker and throwing is a close skill. It's almost yeah. like a game within a game, and your game within the game was your kicking. So, um, in your world, how did you feel prepped for going into that final? So, so interestingly, so. Um... So obviously kickers, you know, we go down and we, we like hookers, you guys go down and you throw and you throw and you throw 
to the front and to the middle and to the back and you throw mm-hmm. the fastball and the lob and the over the back and you've got all these yeah. different skill sets. It's all about timing. It's about the lifter and the jumper. Kicking, kicking is the same, you know, and you go down and you do those extra hours and you kick for touch and you kick your up and unders and kick your dropouts and kick for goal and, you know, you kick your drop kick. And, and and we practice, you know, we we spent hours and hours practicing. And, and on on the Thursday afternoon, um, we we trained on Thursday morning, and it was a light session. And Friday we were going to have our captains run at Ellis Park. Thursday afternoon, the forwards went down to do some lineouts, and I went down to uh, just do a little bit of extra kicking. We went down to a, a field near the hotel we were staying. It was terrible. It was like it was like a concrete patch. It was horrible. <laughs> It was horrible. And and uh, Kitch Christie, once I'd finished with the kicking I wanted to do, and uh, I, was, I was standing there and he came over and he said to me, um, he, said, he said, why don't you get more drop calls? Wow. So I'm like, I don't really want to say anything. He said, uh, <laughs> it's the easiest form of points in the whole game. Why don't you get more of those? Jeez, that's... You may think it's easy. I don't want to say it out loud, but you know, <laughs> Brook and... You know, all these big fellas trying to charge you down. If you make a mistake, you look like a right ass. Um, it's um, you got to drop it perfectly. you got to kick it perfectly. It's, you got to hope it goes straight and rotates. But what he did by saying that is he planted the seed, you know, and, yeah. um, and he got me thinking about it. So so I went on that hard field. I said, okay, well, you know, I'll, you know, I'll kick a few more here and I'll practice a little bit. So I kicked a few and... And on that hot field, you know, when the, you drop the ball on the hot field, it was bouncing this way, and <laughs> bouncing that way, and I was, I was, I was hopeless. I was hopeless. Um, but slowly the timing got a little bit better. And by the time the forwards were finished, the lineouts, um, Yost actually wasn't done with the forwards that day. Yon Ru was done with them. The forwards would be like catching the lineout. Yon Ru would send it back, and I'd kick it. And, you know, I started kicking them a little bit better. When I got onto Ellis Park the next day for the captain's run, to, to kick it off that surface, it was the easiest thing in the world. Is it dream? So, it was a dream. It was, it was so easy. I was smashing it everywhere. Uh, I mean, I don't often tell people this story, but uh, at the end of the kick so the kickers go down a little early and then you have your captain's run. And if you want to do a bit more, then the kickers stay and the hookers stay and throw a bit more. I was still kicking a little bit afterwards after the captain's run and the All Black kickers arrived and, and they went behind the poles and uh, Mertz, who's a great friend of mine now, was um, was warming up behind the poles and doing some stretching, and 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 I was kicking. And I, I like to think of myself as quite a considerate guy, so I don't want the guys who's doing me the favour of kicking the balls back, having to climb ten rows into the stand to fetch the ball. So I'd go back yeah. a distance where I'd carry it over the crossbar and Just into that ten yard space, and he'd be able to catch it and, and hoof it back to me. Yeah. I was kicking drop goals from inside our and half from from 55, 60 wow. meters back, and um, and and the All Blacks came in behind them. They were stretching and warming up. And Mertz told me afterwards, he said they realised. He said he realised they had a bit of drama. He said he said um, the last couple I moved back there and, and someone passed the ball and from my own ten yard line I smashed it straight over the middle of the crossbar to just over where they were warming up. And Pino was out. He was our assistant coach, caught it like on the edge of the grandstand, and I said, "Okay, that's it, let's go." And um, and we finished, you know, our kicking session on that note. And 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 so psychologically, you know, after kicking it on the hard field to go to Ellis Park and 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 on the lush green grass, by the time we got on the field on the Saturday, it was so so well ingrained in in the mind and the confidence and the process was smooth and simple. You know, when the opportunity came along, it's um. And Kitcher had planted the seed. You know, when the opportunity came along, it was it was almost natural to to explain it in a different way. Oh, it's just so good. It's su- such good insight to like such an iconic moment. You know, such an iconic moment in, in on the biggest stage. And um, I love hearing the stories about how you and Mertens are still pals, and you chatted about. I mean, to be kicking from your own half or your own ten at that stage, like fair play. That's altitude. unbelievable. Altitude. Yeah, don't, hey, don't. Leave the altitude out of it. Let's just oh, no, let's leave the altitude. It's a big factor, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, um, unbelievably interesting. And obviously what, what happened um, on that day, the final, everyone who has an interest in rugby knows exactly what happened. And it's really special for, for the country itself. I think cool to have delved into the kind of individual sports psyche of some of the stuff that you went through. And I think after that, one of the areas I'd be keen to touch on was your move over to England. Um, you know, you, you obviously had played in Italy. You, you'd 
played in South Africa and then eventually this move to England comes around. And the reason I'm keen to touch on it is because you went to, um, at that stage, what was one of the most prestigious rugby clubs in the entirety of England. And and obviously Leicester have had a few um, quieter years in recent years, but they still have this heritage and this prestige that is is world-renowned probably, um, I would suggest. So when you moved to Leicester off the back of what was an amazing um, World Cup and rugby's gone professional in the Northern Hemisphere, what were your instincts in terms of how did you find the transition into the Northern Hemisphere mm-hmm. and what did you feel about the difference in professionalism or styles of rugby? So um, so firstly, uh, I chose Leicester um, because of the culture. So yeah. I am... Um, I, 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 Kitch Christie had, you know, retired. He was an ill man. He was fighting cancer and he'd retired. Andre Markroff had become the coach of the Springboks. I'd fallen out with him completely um, over a number of issues and I had a little respect for him and I knew he would never pick me. So, uh, I, you know, I looked for a new challenge. I had a couple of offers and I flew over to England to go and negotiate, not with us, actually, with a different club. And Peter Wheeler phoned me and... Um, and said, can you have a cup of coffee? And I met Peter that I was going to go to Leicester. It was, um, he was just the epitome of everything I loved about the game of rugby, about a rugby club. You know, this real, this incredible man who was hands-on, former player, um, and 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 so proud of, of this of this club with this great culture, as you as you mm. pointed out. In fact, I flew over, that was in December of, uh, I think, 1996, and I flew over to the UK to sign my contract on the 2nd of Jan, 1997. I landed in, in London and, and someone from the Tigers picked me up, took me to the club. It had snowed for like four days. The pitch was frozen. There was snow everywhere. <laughs> and I, I walked into his office and um, Marie, is, uh, his PA, was sitting there and she said, oh, welcome, Chacha. I've met her, obviously. And she said, welcome, great to have you here. And we chatted a bit. Um, she said, You're looking for Peter? I said, Yeah, he said, No, he's out there um, on the field. So I went out to um, find him anywhere. And then eventually I looked over across on the far corner of the pitch. He was helping shovel snow off the field because they had a big game on the weekend. And you know, if the CEO is um, is that hands on, then you know you've gone to the right club. And um, yeah. Leicester was a sensational time for me. It was four of my best, um, happiest rugby, rugby days of, of my whole career playing. You know, um, coaching ultimately or being part of the coaching staff, the environment, the it, it was just unbelievably special. And and um it's a it's a it's a it's a club that remains dear to me and you know as a as a big place in my heart. Um and 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 for a number of reasons, you know, the culture was probably most important, but also, you know, we had a great team and we had uh, we achieved a lot of success. Um we continued uh, you know the, the proud Leicester heritage and legacy. Um and 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 you know and 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 players you know built on that and carried it on. Unfortunately, to your point, they've had a few uh, leaner years and some tough times. But that that proud history, they'll 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 be back. They'll they'll come back fighting. As far as the you know the transition from the playing in South Africa into the UK was concerned, it was a, it was an easy transition. You know, rugby rugby is rugby, and um, you know people yeah. drag you along for the ride and. And you you part of you part of that environment, and it's very easy, you know, that's sort of winning culture to get sucked in and, and dragged along by the likes of you know Martin Johnson and Dean Richards and Neil Back and Will Greenwood and you know just this plethora of unbelievably talented players and and players who have you know shared your dream. It was it was cold and it was wet and it was miserable at times. Um, and the style is a little different, but you know, you 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 knuckle down and you you change a little, and you learn a new skill set, and you play a little differently. And when the weather gets better, you try and you know play the game you want to play, and drag the, the players along with you on your journey. You know, so yeah. I think we had a good balance in my time we were there. It was uh, it was I must tell you as a as a fly off playing in that Leicester team it was really easy. You know, you had a big pack of forwards that just dominated. We scored four mauling tries per game. You know, it was uh, it was quite nice having a soft ride as the number ten in that team. Yeah, you hear about players having armchair rides, and that must have been uh, the lazy boy. I don't know. Um, must have been pretty good to play behind that pack. And I think you know you, you discussed the the success, and obviously, um, 
two trophies whilst you were there. The Allied Dunbar Premiership was one of those, and that's a huge statement. And, and Leicester had so much success after that. I think when you look at the players that you played with, I think the thing I'd be interested to know is um, kind of twofold. You know, there's kind of people who have an influence on you off the pitch. Um, we know culturally people moving to the UK. I've seen it firsthand. Sometimes um, people need an arm around them when they move to a different culture. Like you mentioned, it's wet, it's rainy, Sunday roasts aren't a thing, um, different styles of drinking. I mean, the brides aren't as often because the weather's yeah. crap. So you have people off the pitch who look after you. Um, and I'd be interested to know who at Leicester really put their arm around you in that capacity. And then on the field professionally, you know, as a standard setter in a rugby sense, who, who that person would be too? So um, if, I, if I think back who my great friends are still from that time at Leicester. So, so when I arrived there, I spent you know, a couple of weeks in a hotel and then I eventually found a little apartment and my wife moved, moved over. We lived right next door to Richard Cockrell and his girlfriend. And wow. uh, so, so, so Richard was definitely, Cockers was definitely one of the guys who put his arm around me and, uh, and, and made the, the journey a little easier, probably because he was my neighbour. I don't think there's too many too many hookers and flies who have a huge amount in common. You considering their drinking skills and their habits and the, you know the approach, it is um, it's very it's very different. But he's, he's a wonderful guy. I'm still big mates with Martin Johnson. I spoke to Martin yeah. Corrie last week. Um, wow. Um, if I if I think back on on that time, it was it was it was an incredible time. I brought Pat Howard to the club, and Pat is still a great friend of mine. Yeah. Um, you know, and and rugby rugby is not about not always about one or two people. It's about you know, collective. And, and if I think back, my, my time there was special because the people were all special and um, I'm still big mates with all of them. If there was one person who I'd look back and who I really, you know, think of my, my last time, it would be Peter Wheeler. It was, it was, he, yeah. who, um, it was he who got me there. It was, um, it was, it was he who, um, who, and Bob Dwyer was the coach when I went there and I'm still mm. mates with Bob and, and Ruth um and and but but i used to go play golf with peter wheeler and he would ask me what's happening in the team and we would chat and um he was the you know probably the man who put his arm around me from a leicester cultural perspective and and made me feel at home in the in the city of leicester and in in that environment i mean i think when you get in a team environment with a you know as long as you fit in and you pull your weight and you train as hard as everyone else and you deliver on the field it's it's pretty easy to fit into the team environment and if you said to me who was my of all the great mentors i've had in life and my time at Leicester, the the the, the man i would I, I think of most fondly is probably peter wheeler amazing what an influence from someone who's not even necessarily in that kind of rugby bubble exclusively and i think that's the yeah. indicator of someone who's um doing an amazing job i think in an effort just to, to round off, I appreciate I've stolen an hour of your time already. Um, last question. And I think a man who, you know, Joel, you've covered huge amounts in your in your life, not just your rugby career, you've moved into the world of business and and this term high performance in inverted commas is one that's banded around um, quite regularly. <laughs> regularly by me myself on this podcast but i think the interesting part is getting yeah, everybody's yeah. Indiv individual perception of what it is because i don't think anyone can really the beauty of what it is is no one can define it um definitely and um, it's quite subjective so in your world in your experience of life what do you, what does high performance look like to you so i i um I think it's. I think it's to, to, to your analogy earlier. There's two brains. I think in high performance, one is the mental element, and one is the physical element. I think um, high performance for me in business, in sport, in family, um, is is about really mentally believing in what you're trying to achieve, and then physically working to achieve it. And um, mm. You know, we chat about we chatted earlier about um, discipline, and and I mentioned dedication and all those other buzzwords that come in and around it. But but ultimately, I would guess the one word for me that sums it up, and it is probably the cliche word, is, is attitude. You know, if you if you have the right attitude, um, driven by the mindset, and more often than not, you know, the subconscious is probably stronger than the actual conscious. You know what? 
what we what we need to understand about the how the brain works is the subconscious more more often than not controls the conscious. You know, if you if you deep down don't believe you can achieve something, it doesn't matter how many times you tell yourself you can believe it. You're not gonna you, you don't believe it. So and 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 your attitude towards other people, towards your goal, towards your mission, is really what defines your ability to achieve it. And uh, it's if we if we had all the answers to your question now, we would bottle it and we would sell it for millions. Yes, we would. We'd be very we rich, would, man. We'd be very rich. <laughs> I'd be sat uh, beside you in in uh, Natal, and we'd be uh, enjoying a. A nice drink if we were that rich, but um, we, no, we, I think we'd be sitting. We'd be sitting in the Caribbean somewhere on a yacht. Would we? As long as, as, long as I've got yeah. an umbrella over me, Joel, I'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, listen, Joel, an amazing hour and couple of minutes there with you. I just want to say a huge thank you um, on behalf of everyone who listened to this. It was so much uh, great insight, so many great like uh, stories that you've told there, and I just want to say a huge thank you for for letting me steal an hour of your time. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And, and you know the great thing about um, chatting to someone who's, who's, who's also a regular player and who understands all this is, is, is it actually it actually you know plants little seeds inside your own mind again, and you uh, you appreciate what's important and what's got you to where you are, and, and how you need to you know move forward for your next goal. Because life is about achieving and about setting new goals, and and we all we all do that. We all have that. And we all want to, you know, step up again at some point. But thank 100%. you. Thanks very much for having me on the show. It's been it's been great chatting. No, my my pleasure. Um, wishing you and your family all the best going forward, Joel. Thank you very much, Noel.